Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Balquell's Books. Uh, I'm your host, Balquell, as always, and uh, I know there haven't been any episodes for a few months. There's no reason for that. That's just the way it is. But we're back again today, and we're here to talk about a book. And today's book is Kim by Rudyard Kipling. First published in the year 1901. Now, Rudyard Kipling was a very, very famous English author around the turn of the century who was born, lived, and worked in British India and is famous for his poems and his children's stories as well as his novels, many of which relate to Indian life. This novel, Kim, follows the story of Kimball O'Hara, a young Irish orphan who has been abandoned by his father in the streets of Lahore in northern India, now Pakistan, who grows up as a street kid, sort of completely isolated from the ruling English colonial society. He's not part of that world at all. He's instead immersed and integrated into Indian society as much as is possible uh, for an orphaned street urchin. He ends up meeting a Tibetan Lama and becomes his Shela, or disciple, just as a sort of fun thing to do. This inadvertently leads him to meeting back up with his father's old regiment, his father being a soldier in an Irish regiment in India, and the papers Kim wears around his neck as a talisman reveal to them that he is in fact a British citizen, even though he looks and speaks like just some uh, Indian kid. Uh, after realizing this, they attempt to incorporate Kim back into British society. Now, the story is a children's adventure story, and it's told from Kim's perspective. The text is limited to Kim's limited understanding of the world around him and the political and cultural reality that he finds himself within. This means that for children, it's an easy adventure read full of exciting characters and events, but when you come back to it as an adult, you can see the broader context and understand more of what's actually happening in the story and what Kim is involved in without fully even knowing it. Now, to provide some very brief historical context, the novel takes place during British rule of India. The colonial structure in India was not based on overwhelming military power on the ground, as the presence of English governors and even soldiers pales in comparison to the Indian population, but instead the potential military force of the British Empire and its wealth are the basis of this power, as well as the co-opting of regional conflicts and uh, regional military powers. Kim ends up involved in the so-called Great Game, a cold war between the British Empire and the Russian Empire for control of Central Asia. England controls modern-day Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Myanmar, which was called Burma back then, while Russia is slowly and quickly making its presence known in Central Asia, modern-day Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, etc. This territorial expansion of the Russians uh, worries the English, who 
fear that the Russians are encroaching on their power base in India, which is a lucrative source of wealth coveted by all European nations. This turns Central Asia and India into a forest of spies and agents, akin to Berlin and Eastern Europe during the U.S.-Soviet Cold War of the 20th century. Within all this, we have Kimball O'Hara. As we mentioned, he is the abandoned son of an Irish soldier, and in the Indian context here, Kimball is considered a sahib, a white person. All the English people who see him think, ah, he's white, he's one of us, but Kim sees himself as essentially an outsider to the British regime, which is somewhat hinted at by his Irish heritage. He dresses in Indian fashion. He speaks the vernacular better than he does English. He barely speaks English at all at the beginning of the story, and when he does, with a thick accent. And he interacts socially with Indians and not English while growing up. Most of the people around him, because of the way he dresses and because of his tan skin from living outside on the street, see him and treat him as Indian and not white. Within Indian society, Kim does not see himself as an outsider or as a sahib, and most of the people around him in Lahore don't either. However, when he finds his father's regiment and they recognize him as a white person, they feel a need to deintegrate him from Indian society and set him apart. The English can't allow themselves to be integrated, because a part of their power structure involves keeping themselves separate and above everything else that's going on. So they put him in an English school and teach him English and force him to become at least nominally Christian. In this way, they are turning him into a tool for their colonial purposes, on which topic we'll we'll discuss more later. In brief, he's white enough to be trustworthy and have a sort of expectation of loyalty, but he's Indian enough to be useful to them by blending into the society in order to gain information. With Kim, Rudyard Kipling is offering a certain perspective on a very complex issue relating to racial and ethnic characteristics or identity. We have to consider that this is the early 20th century, and the predominant mode of thought is some sort of racial essentialism. People of certain ethnicities are like this, white people are like that, and never the twain shall meet. What Kipling is suggesting is that many of these characteristics are in fact learned, or at least socially developed. Even though Kim is born a white person, his upbringing causes him to develop an Indian style of life and thought, which is often contrasted, both favorably and otherwise, with English ways. These so-called Oriental characteristics are what causes Kim to uh, have conflict with his English overseers, and this conflict is what makes him relatable and interesting. He is just a kid, but his view of life is in many ways more mature and broad than that of the English people he encounters. He is more philosophically minded, he can appreciate life at a slower pace, and has a much deeper understanding of the Indian culture that he has grown up within. 
We can see here a move toward a more modern understanding of race and ethnicity, where characteristics that were formerly seen as biological are instead considered cultural, a result of one's upbringing and social environment. We can also see in Kimball a parallel to Kipling's own personal relationship to India and Indian culture. Kipling, although willingly engaged in a colonial structure, has a deep admiration and respect for Indian culture that basically you can't deny. Kim's position almost seems like a kind of wish fulfillment, a desire to be immersed in the culture in a way that was fundamentally impossible for him as a member of the white ruling class. However, for all this, Kipling is decidedly unmodern, and his view of India is romanticized and fantastical in a decidedly English way. His reputation as an imperialist is not unearned, and like many European authors we've covered in the past, even when he tries to celebrate a non-European culture, he does so from a position that necessitates certain biases and hypocrisies. On this front, I will say that the novel, this novel, Kim specifically, was not what I expected, considering Kipling's reputation, and as it goes, is downright respectable compared to many of its contemporaries. But this in itself is quite faint praise, and I wouldn't be surprised if my perspective is colored by having read many, many worse novels. <laughs> I mean, it helps that Kipling is a good writer. It really, it, it, it helps a lot to make your book readable. Now this brings us to uh, Kipling's depiction of the great game and the nature of colonial administration in general and spycraft in particular. I mentioned earlier the co-opting of regional conflicts and militaries, but this happens on a more personal level as well, which we witness through several of the novel's principal characters. Like much spy fiction, this is a story about characters with complicated relationships to the masters they serve, and the way their own interests align or don't align with those of their government or nation. To begin with the most straightforward example, we have Mahbub Ali, a Pashtun Muslim horse trader that Kim has known since childhood. As Kim gets more integrated into the British service, he learns that Mahbub is an agent of the British Empire. This makes a certain amount of sense, as traveling merchants make ideal political spies. For one, they have a straightforward reason for traveling around and talking to a lot of different people. For two, they have a vested interest, a vested interest in knowing what's going on, in terms of whose power is on the rise or on the wane, who has money and who doesn't, and of course, who's buying horses, and of what kind. This is all information that Mahbub would be inclined to collect over the normal course of his duties, so selling it to the British is just an extra bonus. His allegiance goes as far as his own pockets, his own self-interest, which is perfectly fine for the British who don't need anything more from him. In a similar vein, Kim himself has certain desires. He wants to be free to travel, to see all of India, and to meet a wide variety of people. 
he joins with the Tibetan Lama because it's an opportunity to travel safely in the company of a holy man, and it promises to be something of an adventure. The Lama sees Kim as a blessing after Kim helps him out during his first night in Lahore, and he thinks that he will help him with his own goal of discovering a legendary river that will cure him of all worldliness. The Lama never gets an inkling of what the British want from Kim when they send him to school. He thinks it's only natural that Kim be with his own people and gain an education. It never occurs to him at all that Kim is being used as a spy or, or as a tool. And in fact, this doesn't occur to Kim either. In the text, he has no suspicions regarding the clearly shady Englishman that he comes into contact with. To his mind, the agreement to act as their agent is a win-win. He gets to do what he wants by traveling around and sneaking into places where he shouldn't be, and he gets paid to do it. Like with Mahbub, the English understand how to use Kim's nature and his tendencies for their own benefit, without requiring any overt political allegiance one way or the other. And in fact, Kim is essentially apolitical. Now, the reason Kim is apolitical is because he's a child. Kim is 11 or 12 when he first gets involved, and in his mid-teens when he's sent into the mountains on his first unofficial mission. We see from the text that he does not put any real thought into the political situation in India, and holds no political convictions or principles of any sort, unless you count his own personal, his own commitment to his personal freedom to do whatever he likes. Kim is being used without his understanding. He doesn't know that what he sees as a simple adventure is, in fact, part of a grand colonial machine. In this way, the book can be seen as somewhat critical of the British Empire and its project in India, with most of the English characters being at, at least a little bit shady. The characters treated favorably in the text are those who value their own personal freedom, and who are just trying to live their own lives and pursue their own ambitions, namely Mahbub, the Lama, and Kim. However, this is but one reading. We could also view the childlike verb with which Kim approaches his missions as sort of implicit support for the righteousness of the colonial project. To my mind, the conclusions to be drawn are left somewhat ambiguous, either intentionally or just by the very nature of the novel as a children's adventure. All in all, Kim is quite an exciting tale with well-developed characters and a heartfelt story of friendship between Kim and the Lama. The sinister undertones surrounding the whole story give it a depth and complexity that keeps it interesting to even more mature readers, and is, I think, key to the novel's longevity. Its depiction of India as a widely diverse society in which various ethnicities and religions exist side by side and on top of one another is lively, if maybe a bit simplistic, but the world feels developed in a way that betrays an, an actual interest in the subject matter rather than an idle colonial fascination with the other. Because of all this, I, I think the book is well worth a read for 
for not only for its historical context and the philosophical questions it raises, but also to gain an understanding of an author who was hugely popular and influential in his time, and has since developed a quite complex reputation both at home and overseas. It is a book that will reward close inspection and will likely encourage further reading and research about the location and time period it depicts. While easy to shrug off and ignore as sort of imperialist propaganda or just an archaic, dusty old classic, there is something about this book that will provide something to modern readers that it might not even have to contemporary readers. Looking at it backwards through the lens of the future, the book takes on even more new meaning and uh, new depth that it that it didn't have uh, when it was first released. So that has been Kim by Rudyard Kipling. This has been another episode of Belkwell's Books. Thank you very much for listening, if you're listening. And uh, if you like this show, you can subscribe to it on a YouTube channel uh, or as a podcast on any podcast platform. Or, and, you can go to my website at balkwell.online, which is the online repository of Balkwell material, including all these shows, uh, essays that I publish every two weeks, uh, and you can find my book there, Only in Dreams. Uh, thank you to Fun Fun Bill, aka Max Miller, aka Fun Bill, uh, for the music for the show. Thank you for the music, and uh, thank you to everybody for listening. I will see you again in the future. Uh, goodbye.